from 1 Corinthians 6, 13b through 20. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. And from Romans 7, 18 through 25. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I don't want to do. Now if I do what I do not want to, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, law of sin and from 1 Corinthians 9 24 through 27 don't you know that the runners in the stadium all race but only one receives the prize run in such a way to win the prize now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything they do it to receive a perishable crown but we an imperishable crown so I do not, so I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under the strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be, be disqualified. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, this morning, we are... Wrapping up our summer sermon series, Fake Good News, we've been discussing various false gospels and the false gospel uh, assigned to me to address this morning, uh, we are calling the gospel of sexual preference. Now that I have your attention, I uh, want to acknowledge <laughs> what I won't be doing uh, in the sermon this morning. I can't respond and represent uh, every viewpoint that's that's out there, uh, there's there's a wide range of viewpoints on this. You, you have some people who are happy to live in a binary, gendered society. They just believe they were born in the wrong kind of body. Uh, you have some who see male and female as opposite ends of a spectrum, uh, so that you could be in between. Others argue that you could be some uh, third gender that has nothing to do with that spectrum. Still others want to reject the idea of gender altogether. 
some people are, of course, are thoroughly secular and reject the idea that we have a creator that could have a purpose for us. Uh, others do argue that uh, an LGBT plus lifestyle is compatible with Christianity, and we've all just been reading the Bible wrong for centuries. Uh, some people want to just peacefully coexist. Others do want the government to tax the church out of existence if we don't get in line with their views. Uh, some people have been hurt by churches. Uh, some want to hurt churches. And so I can't represent and respond to everyone. There's uh, different um, arguments and different tones to take with, with each of these. I'm also not going to spend uh, really much, if any, time defending the historic Christian view of, of human sexuality. Uh, because that's not the assignment. The assignment is to address sexual preference as a false gospel. So I'm standing before a church with a statement of faith uh, that affirms the centuries-old teaching of the church, that the Bible limits sexual activity to a one-flesh one flesh union between uh, one man and one woman. Uh, assuming, then, that my audience agrees with me on that already, my goal is to equip the church to respond to this issue in our culture particularly with a Great Commission perspective. The big question for us as a church is how do we make disciples in this context? How do we teach disciples to obey Christ? Um, how can the church reach people in the LGBT community? How can we exhort and encourage Christians who experience uh, same-sex attraction or uh, some type of gender dysphoria? If there's someone in this room who's wrestling with this, how can we encourage you to hold fast? And there are practical questions involved with all of that, but it's even narrower than that today because the, the question is, uh, how is this a false gospel? What false gospel are, are we up against? What, in what fake news would someone be tempted to place their trust and, and place their hope as they wrestle with this? So as always, the best way to uh, spot a counterfeit is to know the genuine article. Uh, to know the real gospel. And there's a number of ways we can, we can summarize the gospel. It's a very rich uh, and wonderful uh, good news that we have. Uh, you've probably seen the framework God, man, Christ, response. You know, God is holy, man is sinful, Christ died for sinners, so respond by trusting in him and be saved. That's, in a nutshell, uh, the gospel. It's a, a good way of summarizing it's, it's helpful for driving home how the gospel calls each of us as individuals to repentance and faith. But the gospel can, always, can also be looked at through a, a wider angle lens, if you will. There's more to it than how we are saved as individuals. Uh, another way of summarizing it is this, uh, which you may have also heard, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So creation. God made the world to reflect his glory and human beings to rule over the world as his representatives. The fall, instead, the first man, Adam, rejected God's rule, and through his sin, all creation is plunged into sin, into death, futility. Then redemption, God the Son, became a human being, and by his death he atoned for the sins of his people. He is risen and now reigns as a new Adam over a new creation. Anyone who trusts in him is already part of this new creation. But then we look forward to the consummation, the ultimate fulfillment, when all of the world's fallenness and all of our own fallenness and sin uh, will be dealt with once and for all. All creation will be made new. We will be made new, free from sin and suffering and death. And God will reign over his world through his redeemed and restored people, the glory of the Lord covering the earth 
as waters cover the sea. And that framework, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or consummation, helps us not only see the big picture, but also how the gospel informs not only our individual salvation, but a biblical understanding of human experience, of what it means to be human. Uh, Looking at the creation piece of this puzzle, it tells us that human beings have a I have in my notes here the word telos. That's just a fancy Greek word for a goal or a purpose. Someone made us and made us for a reason. We didn't just spring into being. Uh, This gives us both unfathomable value and unavoidable responsibility to the one who made us. We owe God thanksgiving and honor and obedience. Uh, We do not relate to him as if he were simply another human being who happens to be all-powerful but has no right to tell us Uh, what to do. I've talked about this before as as if God is just Bruce Almighty, if you're a Jim Carrey fan. Not just an individual who happens to have these powers. He's God Almighty. He's transcendent. He's beyond us. He's the reason there isn't us, and he gets to say what it means to be us. The fall, however, tells us that uh, we're not in line with that. We're not who we're supposed to be. We don't do what we're supposed to do. We don't want what we're supposed to want. Sin has entered not only the world out there, but also our hearts, our minds, our bodies. They don't work the way they're supposed to. Uh, That's part of who we are now, though it's not who we are supposed to be. It means that we're drawn to sin. It's innate to be drawn to sin. No one has to teach us to do it. It comes naturally to us, although we are certainly capable of, of learning sins from others. We also live in a world where suffering exists. Sometimes people sin against us, and that leaves deep wounds. Uh, sometimes things just happen to us, and it's, there's no clear reason why. Uh, the fall explains why the world is like this and why we are like this. Things aren't the way they should be. We are not the way we should be. And then redemption and consummation, if I'll just take them together, they inform what kind of life we ought to live for and expect here and now. We are part of new creation, but the consummation has not yet come. So we are still groaning, uh, Paul says, under the the, the weight of this. Uh, The guilt of sin is removed, but its presence and its effects in our lives still remain. Uh, We groan as sufferers, toiling in futility, sickness and grief and in loss. And we groan as sinners, not that God still counts us as sinners, but that we still do sin. And it is good that we groan against the sin within us, that we continue to grieve and repent as long as that rebellion remains in our hearts. That's the right response to it. Uh, And that rebellion will remain until he returns or calls us home. That's not the final word on our lives. Uh, We still rejoice uh, compared to the weight of glory that we're headed for. Uh, Even the worst pain is... The Bible says a light momentary affliction. And there is joy and comfort uh, that the Spirit gives us uh, in this life even now. But Jesus did call his followers to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow him. To deny yourself at the very least means that there are some desires left unfulfilled as you seek ultimate fulfillment in Christ. That's just a nutshell picture to have in the background of how the gospel informs who we are, uh, what we are, how we should expect uh, to live as followers of Christ. The gospel of sexual preference has some 
really key differences on each of those points, uh, creation, fall, and then uh, redemption, consummation, I'll take together. Each disagreement reflects an underlying false gospel. So it's not just one. There's underlying false gospels, which I will characterize as types of Gnosticism, Pelagianism, and then a kind of prosperity gospel. I want to acknowledge also, in light of some acknowledgments I, I said earlier, that everybody's different. Some individuals might lean into one or more of these uh, false gospels than others. These also might not be what anyone would explicitly say they believe. I'm trying to get to the heart level of, of where we place our trust. So the first gospel, uh, underlying gospel of sexual preference, is what I'm calling Gnosticism. And I wish there were a better word because Gnosticism is a group of ancient heresies that uh, had a number of false teaching, but the one that they are maybe most famous for is the, the idea that the physical world and our physical bodies were not made by God. Uh, they were made by some lesser being. And so it's almost unfortunate that we even have bodies to begin with. We're, we're trapped in them. Our bodies don't represent our true selves. Our, our soul is our true self. And so salvation is escape from uh, the prison, really, of this physical world. Uh, for some Gnostics, this meant that you should avoid any physical indulgence. The body is evil, so try to rise above it. But for others, Gnosticism meant you're free to indulge whatever y you want to do in the body. Uh, because the body doesn't matter. Matter doesn't matter. There's a, there's a fun pun. Uh, the idea of sexual preference is Gnostic in the sense that the body is not considered your true self, not considered who you are. Uh, the body is denied input into who you are, who you're meant to be. That's obvious in the case of, of transgenderism and the claim that the body's anatomy doesn't define uh, who an individual is. There's that separation between you and, and your body. Uh, the same could be said for homosexuality. The body's biological function and purpose does not inform how one should behave in the body. The hope essentially being offered is this, that your body doesn't define who you are. Your true self is not objective physical reality, but your own subjective sense of who you are. And that is a Gnostic view of the body. Now, there's a lot that could be said about Gnosticism. Uh, this kind of thinking is actually pervasive in our culture and impacts even uh, Christian culture in many ways. Uh, sometimes, as Christians, we forget that our ultimate hope is not merely that our soul will go to heaven when we die, but we believe, as we confessed earlier, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So when God made the first human being, Adam, uh, if you want to flip to Genesis 2 to double-check what I'm saying, you, you're welcome to, uh, he first shaped Adam out of the dust and then breathed the life into him. God made the human body first. The text of Genesis 2 calls that body the man, even before God brings the man to life. It doesn't say he made a body for the man and then put the man into the body. He made the body and that body was the man and then he brought the man to life, breathed the breath of life into him. Your body isn't the totality of who you are, but it is part of who you are. You're more than your body, but you are your body. So God made the body as part of who we are, made it for a purpose, and created maleness and femaleness for a purpose. 
Uh, in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, famous passage, we read that God made them male and female and then told them to uh, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, what's interesting is that those same words for male and female, they're, they're not usual words it's, that would be translated uh, man and woman, but they're used again in Genesis 6, 19 uh, for the animals that went two by two onto Noah's ark, male and female. Now, the purpose, of course, in Genesis 6 is to have a breeding pair to, to repopulate the land with, with those animals. Um, the same purpose is behind male and female and creation of humanity. It's a reproductive purpose. In other words, God has a purpose behind the body, even in its maleness and femaleness, and it dishonors both God and the body to behave in ways that are contrary to God's purposes. This is true of anything God has given us, right? We recognize that with our finances, our gifts, our abilities, our time, or to use these things for his glory, not merely our own enjoyment. Uh, Paul makes this much clear in the text that Richard read for us earlier in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, Paul writes, the body was not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God made the body for a purpose, and he cares about uh, what we do with it. So if you're a Christian, your body is not only part of who you are, but it also is part of your union with Christ. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Think about it this way. Jesus didn't just die for your soul. He died for you. Died for you, body and soul. Every part of you is united to him. And everything you do in the body reflects on him. And so sexual sin of any kind, including the kinds that we are talking about today, dishonor the body and the body's creator. Uh, verse 17 in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This kind of body demeaning Gnosticism, as I sort of mentioned earlier, it's pervasive in our culture. It's not limited to the LGBT uh, plus affirming. It's, it's pervasive. We can find it even in our own lives if we look. I am sure of it. How many of us can say that we are really valuing and stewarding and caring well for the bodies uh, that God has given us? I bring this up because you might say, I don't see how anyone could be tempted by that. But you probably do share some of the same root sins. Uh, you probably can think of ways that you devalue your body, fail to see it as the gift and stewardship that it is, fail to glorify your God, your God in your body, as 1 Corinthians 6.20 commands us all. So the antidote to this kind of Gnosticism for all of us, regardless of what we wrestle with, is to remember what a glorious gift and stewardship we have in the body. And I know that as I say that, uh, that may be difficult to hear for many of us who suffer from various ailments that bring uh, pain and difficulty and indignity uh, your resurrection body will not suffer those things but even now there is comfort in knowing that uh, regardless of the state that, that your body is in or how our shallow culture views your body's particular shape or age or ability your body can bring glory to God Look at the price 
that God was willing to pay to redeem your body. The body of Christ was crucified so that your body would be raised up in the last day. The body was made for God, and God is for your body. He demonstrated how much he cares for all of you on the cross. So if this frail body of dust can bring glory to the God of all creation, why would I want to use it for anything else? Why? Because I'm a sinner. And that brings us to false gospel number two, uh, a false gospel that uh, concerns a failure to come to grips with the, 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 the consequences of the fall, uh, which I am putting under the, the heading of a kind of Pelagianism. Now, Pelagianism is another ancient heresy. It's named after a guy named Pelagius. Um, its key teaching is that it denies the corruption of original sin. We don't come into the world sinful, according to Pelagianism. Uh, the gospel of sexual preference is Pelagian whenever someone argues that because these desires or identities are innate, uh, because we're born with them, because they're not chosen, they are therefore good and right. In other words, because I was born this way, it's okay that I am this way. You occasionally even hear the argument, this is how God made me. I didn't choose it. I'm just recognizing the way God made me. I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes, even as one of their own poets has said, uh, viz. Lady Gaga. Uh, this is one way the gospel of sexual preference offers a false hope of justification. You're righteous if you're just being who you already are. Be yourself kind of a gospel. What this misses is that who we are in and of ourselves is sinners. That's why I had Richard read uh, from Romans 7, where Paul writes of the ongoing struggle with sin. He calls it another law in his members, that is, in his body parts. And again, I want to be careful here because Paul is clearly not anti-body from what we just saw in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, Paul often calls the sinful nature the flesh, and here he even emphasizes body parts in 1 Corinthians 6. He doesn't see the body as evil, but he does recognize that our sinful desires are embodied desires. There's so often bodily temptations, whether sexual or not. Everything we, we do, uh, we do as embodied people. Gluttony and laziness and greed, even something like fits of anger can be just a, a failure to uh, exercise self-control over uh, a physical sort of fight response. But notice that when Paul talks about this other law, this rule of sin in his life, he says he finds it. He just finds it. He didn't consciously or deliberately put it there. It's already there. He finds it already at work in his members. He was born that way. Similarly, in Ephesians 2, 3, he reminds us that outside of Christ, we were by nature children of wrath by nature. It's who we were. And as such, the way he describes this life, it's lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In this, he says, we were just like the rest of mankind. Now, God did give us each unique gifts and personalities. There are things about you that are, are good, uh, that you came with, so to speak. But because we are fallen, we can't trust that our natural desires are good desires. Doing what comes naturally is a good way to get yourself into trouble. 
Here again, you probably understand this, right? Uh, surely everyone in this room faces temptations that just seem natural to you. You didn't get to pick what you're most tempted by, whether it's a, a wandering eye or a short temper or a gnawing need for more stuff or money or a lazy disposition. It's hard to say why some people are drawn more to some sins than others. And it's, it's probably, uh, I don't know, a complicated mix of uh, both nature and nurture, uh, which is likely the case with, with homosexuality and transgenderism, by the way. And you can probably also understand the impulse to justify your sins by saying it's just who I am. Um, sometimes people do that with personality tests. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not indecisive and judgmental. I'm just an INTP and a five lane four. Uh, sometimes we take that attitude with our spouses. You know, you, you, uh, look, you knew what you were getting into when you married me, right? So it's just who, just who I am, who I always was. Uh, we find reasons why our sins are not uh, sins, they're just uh, unique personality traits. I'm not insensitive, I'm just logical by nature. I'm not, I'm not domineering, I just like to get things done. I'm not stubborn, I just, I have strong convictions. I'm not greedy, I just, I just appreciate the finer things in life. They're all ways of trying to justify sin by calling it the way God made me, essentially blaming God for our sin. We all need to identify with the words of Psalm 51, that we were conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. That's the way that we were born. This is one reason why we've been spending time on a prayer of confession uh, each week in worship. Repentance needs to be a palpable part of who we are as a church, if we're to call anyone else to repentance. I want to make it clear that the message we have for the world is not, you need to repent because you're not like us, but you need to repent because you are like us. Um, well, the third false gospel, as I said, has to do with uh, redemption and consummation, sort of chapters. Uh, it's a kind of prosperity gospel. Uh, a few weeks ago, I think Mike preached on the prosperity gospel. I wasn't here because uh, I was sick. Um, so much for my health and wealth, but uh, the prosperity gospel essentially confuses what's already accomplished in uh, redemption with what's promised in future consummation. And God does promise reward to those who follow him. Jesus said he went to prepare a mansion for you. We're supposed to look forward to an inheritance, but the prosperity gospel fails, well, it fails to recognize that ultimately God is the reward. It also fails to recognize that that promised life without Sin and sorrow without pain and death, that's a future promise. And in the meantime, Christ has called us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. And there's a kind of prosperity gospel at work when someone says, God must want me to fill, fulfill these desires because God wants me to be happy. And I can't be happy and unfulfilled. I can't be happy if I can't embrace this identity and I want to be absolutely clear that the unhappiness is, is real. The distress is real. You go back to Genesis 2. It's not good for man to be alone. If we're telling someone that a life of faithfulness most likely means a life of singleness, that call is going to hurt. Uh, the pain is not just something that the activists make up to try to manipulate us. But again, because of the fall, we need to be very careful about confusing what makes us happy or unhappy with what is pleasing 
to God. And, and furthermore, nowhere in the scriptures are we told that the Christian life will be marked by complete fulfillment of all our current desires or even all of our deepest um, felt desires. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about things that he's given up uh, for his particular calling in Christ. He's absolutely clear that those who labor in the word have a right to be paid for that labor, but he freely forfeits that right, uh, works hard at uh, second jobs to, to sustain himself. He does this because it's important to him to present the gospel free of charge. That's what he feels called to do. Uh, he's able to sustain this lifestyle in part because he's single, uh, makes it clear that he also would have a right to take along a believing wife like the other apostles did. It's not that this is somehow miraculously just easy for Paul, that it doesn't sting for him. Uh, he sums uh, all of this chapter up in verse 27 where he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. That word he uses for discipline in verse 27 um, the, the sort of root or basic meaning is um, um, to hit somebody under the eye or to give somebody a black eye. It, it has violent connotations. It, it can, as a metaphor, sort of extend to, to wear someone out or coerce someone or handle roughly. So it's a strict and, and even violent discipline of the body, a, a painful discipline of the body. Uh, and likewise, where he says, keep it under control, again, a more word-for-word -word translation would be to enslave it. I actually kind of like the NIV in this case. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. I, I think the ESV translation is just trying to make sure that we don't actually think that we're supposed to do any kind of self-harm. But what I want to highlight here is that for Paul, following Jesus is no bed of roses. Like someone training to run a race, there's real pain here and now. There are, there are things you deny yourself here and now. That can't be avoided for any of us. After all, like I said earlier, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And deny yourself surely means that some desires will be unfulfilled, whether those desires are legitimate desires or sinful desires. If you only deny yourself things that are easy and relatively painless to part with anyway, you're not really denying yourself. Think of how personal that is to deny yourself we can surely identify with the same instinct uh, to resist this who among us can honestly say we've never faltered in our commitment to deny ourselves and take up the cross worse there are plenty of churches that do preach some version of a prosperity gospel the message is all about how to have a happy and fulfilled life that's what we're tempted to expect God to give us uh, even if we wouldn't uh, explicitly uh, say we're preaching a prosperity gospel. Uh, we, we, we trust God and expect him to give us a perfect spouse, you know, a perfect family, career, finances, all in our time frame, right? And don't mishear me. I'm not saying that Christian life is meant to be one long, miserable torture session. Uh, we can and should enjoy uh, good things that God gives us in this life. You don't need to go about looking for ways to make your life more painful, don't need to avoid everything you enjoy in this life. At the same time, it's worth asking ourselves if our own lives display any sacrifice, any self-denial. How are you striking a blow to your body and making it your slave? 
it's a bit hypocritical to expect others to make a major sacrifice for the kingdom if, if we're planning to coast all the way there. But what all of this is, is getting at, uh, there's something deeper that's a common root behind all of these uh, root heresies, root sins, a common root behind all sin, behind all false gospels. Uh, you could take gospel of sexual preference and uh, fill in any kind of preference. It's, it's the gospel of my preference. We're dealing with the desire to live for what we want and not God's will. It's the sovereignty of self. I want to be in charge. I want a God who fits my plan, a Bible that, that backs up my preferences. I don't want to be made in his image. I want to remake myself, body and soul, into whatever image I want, and then I want to remake God to fit that image. I want God to change his character to match who I am. I want God to defer to what makes me happy. It's not unique to any one particular sin. It's every particular sin. That, that's what's growing in the heart and body and mind of each and every one of us. And the only way forward is repentance, putting off the old self, putting on Christ, counting ourselves dead to sin and alive to God so that just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. The only way any of us will persevere in this is if we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that he's better than any of the temptations that call to us, that his kingdom is like that pearl of great price, and we joyfully sell everything we have to lay hold of it. Christ has to be better to each and every one of us. Um, we, we can't accomplish that in ourselves or encourage it in each other uh, simply by uh, laying on guilt, uh, simply by any kind of uh, peer pressure. Uh, it has to be showing one another that the gospel is beautiful, uh, that Christ is, is worth it, that the glory of God is our ultimate reward. Uh, may God ultimately be at work in each of our hearts uh, with whatever sin we struggle with uh, so that through his grace he brings us all the way home. Let's pray. Father, we confess uh, before you that we want to be in charge. Though you have made us for yourself, made us for your glory, we would rather seek our own glory, rather live for our own Selves. We have transgressed your law, transgressed your will in many ways. And in many ways, uh, we have forgotten the wonder of your grace, the, the story of Christ's redemption, the real good news. Often, we are guilty of being cold toward, of forgetting, of being more enamored uh, with other things, with other um, fake good news, other stories. Uh, we confess this uh, before you and ask that you would rekindle uh, the love that we are, are called to have for you 
that you would rekindle the wonder of the gospel, that you would strengthen our faith, help us uh, daily uh, to, to fall in love with Christ again, uh, to remember how great your grace is. Uh, Father, uh, your grace is great. It is unfathomable to us that um, in spite of our sin or even um, because of it, you would have compassion on us. You would have mercy on us and, and not simply as mere sentiment, but that you sent your son to suffer and die so that we could be redeemed to make us your people make us your children your sons and daughters provide us with a, such a rich inheritance beyond all we could ask or or think or imagine uh, father i pray that this truth would captivate our hearts daily and that it would uh, motivate us to live kind of life that you have called us to, that we would with joy lay aside the, the sins that call to us, with joy willingly sacrifice even, even things that we maybe have a right to, uh, so that uh, we can lay hold of the prize that you have already won for us in Christ, and so that uh, we might pour out ourselves in order to build one another up and in order to um, hold out that same hope of salvation to those around us who uh, are in desperate need of a Savior. We ask these things in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen.